broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him, and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Welcome back to another week of The Hunting Show. I'm your host, Stephen Spargo, and coming to you, well, from Fiji, of all places. Fiji, the middle of the South Pacific. How lucky am I? We're doing something a little bit different with the show this week. We're going to do half of the show tonight and half of the show tomorrow night. It's really just to see how that goes. It's a bit of an experiment with the format and see how you guys like it and see how it sounds. Joined by telephone, I have... Well, a friend of mine, Cam Speedy. Cam, how have you been? Hi, Stephen. Good, mate. Really good. Enjoying the spring. Oh, hey, it's bloody hot, isn't it? Today it was humid, man. Uh, Sticky ass. Well, do you know what? I'm in Fiji. Are you? Yeah. So I'm I'm slightly higher temperature than you, and it's it's sweltering. (laughs) Yeah, we um, we had a rainy, windy morning this morning for all around the lake cyclists which seemed pretty uh, tough on them but uh, it's cleared up this afternoon to sort of 90 plus percent in 25 degrees and it's like yeah it's probably more like Fiji. <laughs> now first of all Cam what have you been doing with yourself been getting into the hills much? Uh, I'm in the hills for another one and I'm with some young fellas next week for a week with Matua Tom which is cool um, but no nah, I haven't been in the hills for a little while I've uh, been doing a bit of uh, dry side fishing on the Tongariro River with my kids. It's just been stunning again this year. And uh, shooting plenty of hares and rabbits around the place, which has been lots of fun <laughs> for my yep. wee old boy and little wee uh, 22. So, yeah, lots of good opportunities for firearm safety and practising and shooting and that. So, yeah, all good. Actually, there's a lot to be said about shooting rabbits with a 22. Hell yeah, it's good fun. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Do you, do you eat them, Cam? Um, Backstraps, yeah, uh, but also feed them to the dogs, and uh, they do really well on them, so yeah, don't waste them. My friend Christian from Rabbit Ranger, he is all about getting rabbits back on the menu, and he sent me some fantastic recipes, and I haven't tried many of them, because I'm not a big fan of rabbit, I have to be honest. I've eaten it, because I had to and I was hungry, Um, but he's got things like deep fried rabbit, stewed rabbit, rabbit pie... So I'm, I'm kind of starting to get all energised and thinking I might give up the old old bunny a go again. I'll tell you what, mate. Um, egg and bread crumbs with garlic and salt and pepper. You wouldn't pick it from Kentucky Fried Chicken, mate. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Rabbit. Well, well, I'll put that to the mate. colonel. Now, I just wanted to ask you about the Wananga. How's that going? Because we, we touched on that briefly last time we spoke. Yeah, we've got another crew of eight young Tuwhare Tuwarangatahi with us at the moment. They've done their learning um, uh, weekend back at Matariki in July, and uh, they're coming back next week for their harvest weekend to pull the things they practiced, uh, all the things they learned about sustainability and, and the practice in the field. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to that. So are they They're a really good bunch of kids this time, and um, really looking forward to it. I want to just know more about that. So you teach these kids sustainability. Tell me more about that. So these are all Tuwharetua youth. Uh, We take them up onto a block of Tuwharetua ancestral land and we try and use their interest in hunting to reconnect them with their ancestral lands and with their concept, the Māori concept of kaitiakitanga, which is 
um, stewardship world that goes much deeper than that. It's a very intergenerational responsibility. Um, so teaching them what their lands used to be like, what their lands are like now, what the changes have been and what they can do as young fellows coming through as future leaders to ensure that their lands remain sustainable. And it's about the birds of the forests. We've got new animals there like um, Sikadia now, which are a valuable resource, but too many is a problem. Mm. Um, you know, we've got trout in the rivers and eels in the rivers, but their eels are in problem. Uh, you've got a few problems. So we talk to them about how to harvest their tuna stocks so that they've got a reliable source of uh, of tuna. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a cool program, and they, they really get into it. And we use hunting and firearms as a sort of vehicle to teach that stuff. Just a question for you, Cam, and it's a little bit off topic, but how do the iwi see or treat or understand introduced species? Uh, I think it's a pretty neat thing um, for Māori. They're, they're real big on the hunter-gathering thing. Mm. Um, they're not allowed to take their traditional proteins like kereru and kiwi and stuff out of our forest now because they're uh, threatened species, but uh, pork and, and venison is, is still there, and, and so I, I think they're just embrace the, the new things. They used to harvest a lot of different fish types. Now trout have had a big impact on a lot of those, so they've taken the trout. Uh, so I just think it fits with their hunter-gatherer sort of take on the world. Hmm. So you just uh, you just see that, or they see it as, you and they, see that as a natural progression? Um, well, obviously I'm not Māori, so you'd have hmm. to... Um, Ask ask Māori that, but my um, my take on it is that they very much um, do a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, collecting kai, gathering kai is a key part of who they are as people. Mm. Uh, and you know, in the absence of being able to take kereru and kiwi, um, they're just as happy to take pork and venison, and they do. Aren't um, we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and I suppose one thing that I think a lot of European hunters have. Uh, probably trouble getting their head around is the concept of of, of tribal lands or, or land that the iwi own or or look after maybe because it's they still see it as I you know when I was a kid I used to cross that or I, do you kind of get where I'm coming from and I just want your where do you think you sit with that in terms of the Kaimanawa um, there's a lot of Māori land in the Kaimanawa mm, very much. It's, Traditionally been um, leased out to concessionaires. Originally, that was guys wanting to shoot venison for sale. Then it was live capture of hinds. And in more contemporary times, the last couple of decades, it's been around hunting and fishing. And you've got organisations like Heli Seeker that are um, paying lease fees uh, to fly people into those blocks to utilise them. Mm. So those Māori owners, through their various trusts, make revenue streams from those lease arrangements. But Increasingly, there's a desire for um, Māori interests to um, be actively involved in the management of their lands. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, I think that's a shift on, I'm starting to see. There's a lot more hands-on desire, um, less uh, management by um, a third party and more hands-on management. Mm. And, look, what we're seeing in the Te Uruweta Rangers to date has been fantastic, very much the same sort of concept, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Two Hoi are so deeply connected to, to Uruweta and their aspiration there is for a thriving, vibrant um, place that sustains them. And they're uh, prepared to share that with all of us, mm. from hunting and fishing, 
um, perspectives. So, yeah, I, I, I find that a, a wonderful thing. The concept of kaitiakitanga, like I said, it's loosely described as stewardship, but it's much, much deeper than that. It's an intergenerational responsibility, and Māori looking after their own land is a really positive thing uh, for New Zealand environment, in my view. And with these young people that you're taking into the hills, and by the way, I commend you for that. I, I, I absolutely think what you're doing is fantastic. Um, but where do you see that sitting with regards to herd management? Well, a lot of them are involved in hunting, but, you know, they, they're out there blazing away, um, mm. taking all the velvet stags and shooting as many as they can and not fully understanding the impact of their actions. What we do is we, we sort of talk them through herd management and about making sure that the herds are big enough to provide healthy animals uh, but not so numerous as to start compromising the long-term sustainability of the habitat. And to be fair, there are a lot of places in the Kaimana or Kaweka with Sika where Sika are skinny and you wouldn't feed them to your dog. I mean, yeah. the Kaweka has changed enormously in the last 20 years and it's got from a very unsustainable situation back to a more sustainable um, setup. And we sort of talk that through with these guys and help them understand that uh, you've got to have the forest. The forest is the foundation upon which it's all built. And uh, you know, while it might seem great to have heaps of deer, uh, you soon see them getting pretty skinny and they're not that good on the table um, if the forest isn't up to scratch. So we, we talk a lot about that sort of stuff. Herd management is a key part of getting the balance right. Now, as so hunters in general, what can we do or, or what can someone like me do about herd management? Um, I guess being aware, um, I, I hunt like an ecologist. I, I don't hunt like your, your sort of normal hunter. I look at the bush very critically. I'm looking at what sort of feed is about. I'm looking at the condition of the deer I'm seeing. Uh, I'm looking at the types of animals I'm seeing. And I try to put it in a broader context. And I think all hunters could benefit from having a broader understanding of um, how sea deer interact with the habitats of the Central North Island and trying to understand that more and be a a part of that. What we often see is that hunters fly in in huge numbers in the raw and they're hell-bent on shooting a stag. Mm. They push button number six on the AJ caller and a young stag thunders up uh, or sneaks up, as the case may be, uh, and he gets a bullet. Um, everybody shoots a stag. Everybody takes home some meat. Nowhere near enough hinds get shot. So we have an overabundance of breeding animals uh, in what are often struggling habitats where there's not a huge amount of feed around would be better to take a lot more hinds. And I've been banging on about this for 20 years uh, and a lot of people picking up on it, but there's still uh, a large number of hunters who really don't appreciate why it's really important that we harvest a lot of hinds. And if you go to places in the Kawikas that have been subject to aerial search and destroy for coming up 20 years now, uh, since 2009, it's just been hinds only. And the Kauikas has transformed from a place full of munted forest and skinny deer mm. to regenerating forest and really healthy deer. Lots more roaring. Uh, it is a really cool outcome. And if hunters could understand that and make sure they participated in it, and it really is about taking a, a, a few less bags and maybe a few more hinds. It's, it's that simple, Stephen. But surely, Cam, there's enough forest for... Uh, okay, to, to change that tact, and I'm, I'm really only saying this to be devil's advocate, 
I want to see more deer because I want my hunting experience to be better. Yeah, that's fair enough. But the, the thing about hinds is that hinds don't shift when they run out of tucker. They just suffer. Right. Uh, all of the radio tracking work shows, and, and right from Mavis Davison's days in the 60s and 70s, is that hinds live very sedentary lives where they were born. And they occupy a couple of grid squares on the map. And if there's no food there, they don't go and find some somewhere else. They stay there and get skinny and start to struggle to raise their fawns. Um, their fawns, if they get into reproductive status, are born small. They don't grow that well because mum hasn't got enough milk and they die in the winter, which is a big waste. Stags do move. They go to the fattening country or the finishing country, as we sometimes call it in sort of farming context. They'll chase the good tucker because getting fat and growing big animals is critical to their success. Uh, in terms of passing on their genes. So stags do move, and, and as the radio tracking studies have shown, they grow big distances from good tucker and then back to the, the girls for the raw. So, you know, people shoot stags in the rut and they're fat, and they think, oh, everything's tickety-boo here, and this patch of forest <laughs> must be good because these stags are fat. The reality is if you want to have a look at the condition of the forest, take a look at the condition of the hinds because they live there. The stags often don't. And, and so um, if you don't shoot enough hinds, what you'll find is that the hinds stop breeding, their fawn survival and their reproductive rates will plummet, and, and you'll have 10-year-old hinds that might have only raised a couple of fawns in their whole life, whereas if you have healthy forests, that hind will um, breed every year, year after year, and you will have more deer. It's, it's about carrying capacity and about fawning percentages. You talk to sheep farmers about this, it, it's you know, classic lambing percentage stuff. Um, so you will get more deer by adjusting your herd to fit the quality of the habitat. And, and that's uh, something that a lot of hunters don't really understand. Mm. And is that is that unique to seeker deer, or is that is that all species we have here in New Zealand? No, it's not... Um, it's not unique to seeker deer. It's the same for deer and game animals all over the world. But seeker are incredibly, um, uh, what's the word, um, frugal. They can live on some really, really poor diets and still crop. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're nature's perfect forest foragers. They'll eat anything, mushrooms, litterful, herbs and grasses and, and stuff like that. So um, they've been able to thrive in the crappy soils of the Kaimanawas and Kawakas for the last 20 years where red deer no longer thrive because the habitat's changed. So, um, you know, it, 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 we do see it in our seeker deer a lot. The other thing, of course, is that seeker deer are very small carcass weight and, and there's not a lot of commercial interest in them from a harvesting and selling meat perspective, whereas red deer um, tend to get chased by the helicopters a lot and they tend to be kept below current capacity. But in a lot of the Marmaka country and the high-altitude beach forests in the Kaimanawakalika, deer have been above carrying capacity, at or above carrying capacity for generations, and you see it in a decline in forest structure and a decline in deer quality. And it's it's a very sad thing to see when you're seeing sort of carcass weights of 18 kilos for a mature seeker hind that you know, 10 years old, she might have only raised one or two fawns in her whole life. Mm. That, that's right. A question that I've always had is, I don't pers- I know a little bit about seeker, and I've I've certainly chased them around a bit, but I don't know a lot about where they're natively from. Is there a major difference between where they've ended up, which is the Kaimanawas here in New Zealand, and where they originated from? Oh, they're they're from Asia. They occur right through Asia, from sort of 
Southeast Russia and Siberia, right down through China, Manchuria, uh, and as you come south towards the equator, they get a bit smaller. Uh, they're on the island of Taiwan and through Japan. Um, so they're a, um, a temperate deer. Um, they're a forest deer, very much adapted to a forest lifestyle. Uh, and that makes them a little bit different to um, red deer, which are often more adapted to a more open country lifestyle. Um, they're closely related. They're both cervids, uh, and they do hybridise mm. uh, with viable hybrids, so they're as closely related to red deer as perhaps wapiti, um, although maybe not quite. They, they don't hybridise quite as readily as wapiti and red deer, but seeker are a smaller forest deer, so they've developed a lifestyle which is a bit different to the red deer. I guess one of the key differences that um, people might pick up on is the rut. Um, Seeker stags tend to have what's called a tending bond mating system where they'll um, hang out with a hind for the six or eight or ten hours that she's cycling and they'll mate with her a few times and then um, they'll carry on their beat around their scrapes trying to find another um, hind that's in season. That sort of one-on-one tending bond mating system as opposed to your classic open country uh, rutting style like red deer and wapiti where they tend to round up the girls and try and cover them for themselves so that when they cycle, they um, they are the ones that, that are able to pass on the genes. Mm-hmm. So that difference in, in rutting is a clear difference between the habitat that the two species occupy, red and wapiti in more open country and seek and foresty. You see similar sorts of mating patterns in white-tailed deer and in samba deer, um, they don't herd up in, in great big mobs in the rut. Uh, they tend to be far more solitary. So, um, yeah, that, those reflect the lifestyles that they've developed in their native lands. The forests are obviously very different um, in, uh, in Asia and Japan. A lot of deciduous forests, whereas here most of our beach forest is uh, green all year round. Most of our beach trees lose their leaves in the springtime, to be fair. Um, but, um, yeah. They thrive. They're very successful foragers. They'll eat anything. Um, and we found that in the uh, diet study I was involved with back in the 90s where seeker deer had over 200 different plant species in their diet. Mm. And, um, yeah, they, they were always on the lookout for something to eat. And they can digest most things. They've got a very complex gut system that, that is able to digest poor-quality food, high-fibre food. So, yeah, they, they do thrive. Even when red deer can no longer thrive, seeker are doing it well mm. in the in the Kaimanawa, Kalaka High Country. But even they are starting to struggle in some places because of under-harvest. And uh, I say under-harvest because that's the critical thing. People are not shooting enough hinds. I've got a couple more questions before we end this part and move on to part two, which will air tomorrow night of... Well, tomorrow night. You can pick that up around 5.30 tomorrow. first question I have for you is, yeah, hybrids. You get seeker red hybrids. Funny little creatures, eh? I, I don't. What, what are your thoughts on them? Oh, often not so little. Um, yeah, yeah they, they can they be. Don't, they don't hybrid the way you want them to, do it though, do they? <laughs> well, it depends who um, mates with who and what their genetic provenance is. But we tend to see it on the margins of the range. You see it a lot in sort of the Mohaka, the Unprahine forests mm. uh, on the Mangaharudu range. You see it out west. Uh, on Rupehu, um, you see it down south on the Genelani Road. Um, it, it tends to be where seeker and red deer are sort of overlapping. Um, there's not 
that many hybrids in the core seeker range, even though red deer occupy up higher uh, on somewhere like the main Kaimanawa range. There's still reasonable red populations between the Waipakei and the Rangitike. Um, hybrids are not actually that common, maybe, you know, less than 2% of the herd. Um, but, um, yeah, often it's a, a seeker stag mating with a young red hind who cycled a bit later. Yeah. Um, and so you tend to get uh, stags with very chappy antlers, but perhaps a red tail, a bit bigger, a jaw length, not quite a red stag, but much, much bigger than a seeker stag. So, um, yeah, if you're shooting a mature seeker stag with a 45 mil, uh, 245 millimetre jaw length, and he looks just like a jap, but he's got a bit of a reedy tail, it's probably a fair indication that his dad was a jap and his mum was a red hind. What are the risks of that bloodline really getting contaminated? Is it, is it significant, or is it just... Is it just going to happen occasionally and we have we just deal with it? Oh, it's been going on for years. Mavis, um, her hunters shot a whole lot of hybrids. Uh, but again, it was where Seeker were dispersing into red deer country. So um, it was on the margins. And um, we still see that today. Seeker have pretty much slowed their natural dispersal. Um, they're not competitive against red deer and some of the richest soil tops, types and forest types. They don't like the real cold, wet country. Mm. Um, so... Uh, in my view, we're not going to see Seeker expand much more in the Central North Island without human assistance on the back of a truck, which we don't want because we want the Central North Island to remain a specialist Seeker place. Now, the one, the last question before we move on to part two, and again, listeners can hear that tomorrow night, is why Seeker are quite different to hunt. They, they seem to me to be quite smart, is that a nat- is that a sort of product of where they've come from, or or is that something that's developed since they've been here? Oh, I think um, the behaviours we see in deer today reflect their natural um, behaviours that they've inherited from many many generations of evolving in the forests of Asia. But they do adapt to hunting pressure enormously. They'll become very nocturnal when they're under pressure. Um, I guess the key thing about seeker hinds in particular is that they live their whole lives on two grid squares and they know those two grid squares intimately and um, those are much smaller home ranges than we see in, in some of our other deer species, particularly red deer. Um, so seeker, particularly hinds, know their home range very well and the secretive forest deer that like shelter, escape cover and shelter cover is a really critical part of seeker habitat, whereas reds are a bit more comfortable out in the open. I mean, all game animals adapt to any hunting regime. Um, Seeker tend to do so by becoming more secretive and using their natural affinity for cover a lot more. So I think it reflects both their ancestral uh, past, Stephen, and the modern hunting regimes they're exposed to here. Okay, well, Cam, let's let's take a breath right now. Guys, you can catch up with what we're going to talk about tomorrow night, which is Central North Island... Seeker Foundation and Cam you've only recently started that but more about that tomorrow night be careful out there guys and uh, tune in in 24 hours and well hey why not good hunting Broadcasting from an undisclosed location from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics.